Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to episode two of season six of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Last week, um, I shouted out a few people, but I missed an important one. Um, Nick Apostolaris, who was one of my guests in season three, and has been a wonderful supporter of what I'm doing, as well as a great person to get to know and chat with online, was the guy I missed. Nick has a brand new album of his own coming out fairly soon, and I can't wait to share that with all of you once he releases it, and I will also definitely be picking that up on vinyl if he releases it on vinyl again. Um, Today I'll be talking about the second track from Southern Accents, the very groove-heavy It Ain't Nothing To Me. If you're new to the podcast or just need a reminder, I don't play the song in the episode itself out of respect to Tom's estate and to avoid any copyright issues. I always leave a link in the episode notes, though, so you can go back and listen to the track before we start, and afterwards too, if you like. In conversations with Tom Petty, Tom says nothing at all about this song. And there's a dearth of information to be dug out on this one, which does seem slightly curious. Um, There's actually a couple, three songs on Southern Accents that don't get covered in conversations with Tom Petty. And I might actually touch base with Paul Zolo and see if he remembers, you know, whether they actually did have conversations about those and they didn't make the book or whether there was some reason why they didn't cover some of those songs. I think that would be kind of interesting to find out. Um, it's another radical left turn from the band sonically, and obviously is the first Heartbreaker song to be co-written with someone other than Mike Campbell. The introduction of Dave Stewart into the Heartbreaker's tight little circle definitely rocked the boat, and was a precursor to the restlessness that culminated in Tom working with Jeff Lynne, thereby ending the first phase of Tom's career before Full Moon Fever elevated him to an even higher plane. The song was an ever-present part of the set on the Southern Accents tour in 1985, but never played once after that most likely because that tour was the only Heartbreakers um, run that brought out a horn section. I'll be talking about the live version from Pack Up the Plantation toward the end of the episode, and the horns are definitely a part of that discussion. The song opens with studio chatter, irregular guitar tones, solo bass and keyboard notes, random keyboard notes, before the kick snare pattern comes in. And you're immediately struck by how much this doesn't sound like a Heartbreakers song, and how little that sounds like Stan Lynch on drums. I know that Don't Come Around Here No More was written and mainly recorded in Tom's home studio with Dave Stewart programming a drum machine. And you really get that feel from this intro too. And I'd be surprised if the drum part wasn't, you know, it was probably written on a drum machine first of all and then played live by Stan. And again, maybe like you got lucky, they mixed elements of the two two parts to, to get the sound that they ended up with. After around 15 seconds of all this preamble, that sort of fat bass line kicks in and Mike starts um, laying down some really bluesy shredding accompanied by whistles and howled vocalizations from Tom. At uh, the 32nd mark, the horns come in and we get another first, a heartbreaker song that isn't led melodically by guitar or keyboards, with the horn section providing what is essentially the riff. In the right channel, you get this great little funky rhythm guitar part, and I'm not sure if that's Tom or Dave Stewart, uh, who also played you know, both bass and guitar in this song. Uh, in addition to Tom and Mike. And, you know, live, pretty sure it was Tom playing it, so probably it was on the studio version as well, or I don't know, it could have been Dave playing it and then Tom sort of backing it. I'm not too sure exactly how they would have recorded that one. Um, But again, this longer intro really sets the restless mood that the rest of the song is going to follow. 
The first measure of the first verse comes in on 48 seconds and that restless, agitated sound underpins the very first lyric. It's a very Spartan mechanical tone overall during the verses with that rhythm guitar panned hard right and Mike's lead uh, you know, panned slightly to the left. We also get some seemingly unrelated abstract lines in the verse with Tom singing, We got a man on the moon, to which the choir responds, It ain't nothing to me. And the backing vocals are sung by Mike, Howie and Dave Stewart. And I do believe this is the first time that Mike is credited with backing vocals on a Heartbreakers record. It's almost certain that the three men would have recorded their half of the call and response as a group behind an individual mic, rather than individually in, in, in different, uh, different takes. And you really get a lot of that sort of room reverb and the delivery is, you know, slightly and deliberately sloppy and syncopated, giving it a really live feel. Through this section, the drums are keeping a metronomically tight backbeat and the bass guitar is really just staccato and stabbed with only a very few small runs and licks. So you can tell immediately that this bass part isn't something that Howie would have written, nor Tom or Mike for that matter. It's so far from the wheelhouse that it could only really be an outside player, and in this case, the aforementioned Dave Stewart. You know, that funky stutter-stepping verse then gives way to a much brighter, more Heartbreakers-esque chorus. But where three years ago, the padding in this section would have been provided by Ben Monton organ, here it's the horns that fill out that section. So to me, it's a little jarring because that upper register sounds quite sort of thin and tinny and it's a bit unfulfilling. And if you think about how Benmont might have played that in the studio in place of the horns, if they had to take the horns out, um, you know, probably in the mid-range on the Hammond, bringing in the sort of the lush wobble of the Leslie speaker, you know, I think that would have filled out and made it a more rich, um, a more rich tone in, in, in that sonic space, or even in addition to the horns, as he does on Pack Up the Plantation, as we'll talk about later. I do like the way the guitar opens up in this section, and Mike's bluesy licks are replaced by a much cleaner tone that harkens back once more to the band's more birds-oriented stylings. The drum pattern doesn't change in this section either, and I honestly can't imagine that Stan overly enjoyed recording whatever drums he did record on this track. And for such a funky-feeling song through the A sections, and even into the chorus, it's a fairly lifeless, uninspiring drum part, in my opinion. We also get some keyboard or synth after the line, right with you, that I can't, I can't quite peg. It sounds like a synth, or I guess it could be... A really heavily processed guitar or piano or something, but I, I I don't know what it is. And there's no one credited with synth on this track in the liner notes, although there's definitely synth there. The chorus leads straight into the next verse with no fill, so again, very un-Stan Lynch-ish. And here Tommy's talking about smiling politicians and songs from rich musicians calling Tokyo long distance and the Queen came for tea. So thematically, it feels like the lyrics are more or less about the disposable nature of fame and stardom. You know, it might mean something to you, it means nothing to me. We hear that cool phase effect on Tom's vocal on the third line, as we did in the first verse, which changes up the dynamic a little, but otherwise, this verse doesn't really build on the first in any way. And likewise, the second iteration of the chorus doesn't take us to any new scenery, with Tom, I'm fairly certain, singing his own major fifth harmonies over the line, I can go right with you. After the second chorus, we get a key change into the bridge, which is my favourite part of the entire song in the, in the studio recording. Again, we get that nice chiming birds-esque lick over the root chord from Mike, and I'd be willing to bet that that's been strummed out on his Rickenbacker. Those notes just ring out like shiny silver bells. We also get some double-time, they're either toms or electronic drums, it might be electronic toms, but then definitely some acoustic bigger floor tom hits from Stan in this section, so you know he's not just a character from Westworld robotically playing the same four bars repeatedly. But just as it starts to get interesting though, and you hear the beginning of what you think is going to be a rip-roaring guitar solo, the song heads back abruptly into the next verse. And those really low, fairly quiet toms are, again, like I said, I'm 
probably electronic toms, they retain through this verse, and we do get a, some different sonic touches with some heavily slid or whammy barred guitar notes thrown in to give the song a bit more of a greasy layer. We also get an ominous suspended minor chord faded in on the synth again. That leads us back into the chorus again, which cuts halfway through back into the bridge section, again for eight bars before we drop again into another verse. So again, it's sort of it, it, it's that restlessness and that sort of it's never quite sure what it wants to be, this song almost, right? It's got that schizophrenic kind of personality to it. The lyric in this verse is a thinly veiled jab at TV evangelists who have a message for avoiding the wreckage, as Tom sings, before calling out gypsies at home watching Jerry Falwell on TV. Then the kicker here is very wryly placed. Might mean something to you, it ain't nothing to me. And I'm glad that the reference to Falwell is less than complimentary in this song, as, to put it mildly, I was not a fan. After this last verse-chorus pair, the song is basically done, and then we get a protracted minute-and-a-half fade-out around the funky intro progression. Mike Campbell adds some trippy guitar into this section, uh, and the bass cuts out with Benmont then ripping into that killer sort of jazzy piano part over the top of a, a reedy synth pad, and the horns keeping that bass leitmotif uh, repeating throughout. <laughs> Folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. Three of the following states are the only ones in which the Heartbreakers never played a live show. But which was the state in which they did play? Was it A, West Virginia, B, Alaska, C, Utah, or D, Vermont? Well, it might not be a huge surprise to learn that Tom and the boys never made it up to Alaska. But it's probably slightly more surprising that West Virginia was never a stop on a tour of the southern states, You'd also have been pretty confident in thinking that the band would have stopped in Vermont as they did that northeastern swing, but again, you'd be wrong. So it was almost as much of a surprise to me that the band did play Utah when it didn't play a couple of those other states. The Heartbreakers took the Dogs With Wings tour to Salt Lake City on August 10th, 1995, and on November 5th, 2002, the last DJ tour made an appearance in West Valley City. Your question for this week is this. How many number one singles did Tom enjoy both solo and with the Heartbreakers on the US rock chart? Is it A, zero, B, six, C, 10, or D, 15? Okay, back to the song. On the subsequent Southern Accents tour in 1985, the Heartbreakers recorded a live set at the Wilton Theatre in Los Angeles on August 7th, which was released as Pack Up the Plantation Live, with a few additional tracks recorded on other dates. Um, it was released on November 25th, 1985, so three months from recording to release for a live album. It's pretty quick. Turnaround's pretty quick. And shows you that there were almost certainly very few overdubs, if any, on that live record. So the version on that record of It Ain't Nothing To Me is, in my opinion, vastly superior to the studio version. First of all, it's ever so slightly slower, and second of all, the drums are live, and Stan swings them in that slightly slower tempo, and it's almost, you get an almost Phil Rudd ACDC groove. You know, it's got that almost undefinable swing to it that a straight back beat really shouldn't have, but when you actually play it on drums, it's <laughs> harder than you think it might be to, uh, to replicate. And he's adding in some hat lifts, a few more small fills to make it actually sound like the Heartbreakers. 
We also get way more Benmont, both on the organ and again that organ in that um, in that upper range sonic space. Just it sounds perfect. But that sounds like the Heartbreakers to me, and which is I really miss that on the on the studio version. And we get more piano in there as well. And when the song flips to that major key in the middle eight, you also have way bigger dynamics. Also, Mike Campbell is playing his absolute balls off on this one. The song is perfect for a live setting as it's essentially a jam track rather than being something that has any sort of, you know, strict structure or, or poignant meaning. And it just absolutely cooks in this live arrangement. Tom's vocal's incredible and the call response sections are beautifully full with the addition of the rebelettes on additional back, on backing vocals. Um, so when I listen to a jam song in a live setting, I enjoy it a lot more. And on the record, the studio version really sticks out like a sore thumb. So, you know, as I was saying, it's a jam song, and so we get this face melter of a solo from Mike Campbell. And my friend Pete Nestor um, from the Honest and Unmerciful podcast commented today um, how much more Dave Gilmore, that guitar tone, sounds. And I'd add to that the you know, a lot of the bends that he's putting in there definitely have that sort of that Gilmore growl, as I like to think of it. We do also get that Benmont piano scat with Stan adding in a, a much funkier, killer syncopated, almost sort of almost like a calypso style beat um, underneath that section. And even the horns on this sound fuller and the brassier and richer. Everything about this version is superior to the studio recording, to the extent that I can't imagine that you'd ever listen to the Southern Accents version on a playlist when you have this one to go to. Even down to the horn stabs in the big rock and roll stop ending, it's just night and day difference. <laughs> Okay, folks, that's all for this week. Um, look, I'm going to be honest. I always listen to this track when I'm listening to the album because although it's jarringly out of place with songs like Rebels, Dogs on the Run, Southern Accents, and The Best of Everything, or even songs that didn't make the final album like Trailer, Walking from the Fire, or The Apartment Song, it is part of that set of songs, so I do always listen to it. However, I don't listen to the song on its own, and I just don't love the arrangement or the instrumentation, to be honest. Like I said, the live version absolutely cooks, and I love listening to that when I'm throwing on uh, Pack Up the Plantation, and that version is on a couple of my playlists. However, the lyrics are fairly minimal and fall short of Tom's best work, however you cut it, never mind being a long way short of his best work, and they do feel a little disposable. They feel like they're tacked onto this great groove they had and this jam they had going, uh, and they were sort of written, I would guess, fairly quickly, and just a sort of top of the top of his head sort of ideas that came to him. I think there's probably a reason they never tried to rework this one live after 1985 without the horns. Um, and again, for me, the heartbreakers and horns, they just, I don't know, they don't go together for me. Um, and I say this with apologies to the many people who love that development in their band sound, and I know that Bob Reedy will vehemently disagree with me on that. Um, but it leaves me with a difficult decision. I do feel that I have to rate the studio version and not the live version, because I've been doing that so far. Uh, and I'll be talking about Pack Up the Plantation Live with my co-host, John Paulson. Maybe it's a bonus episode at the end of this season, actually. So what I think I'll do is I'll give you my score for the studio version, but I will also give you a live score as well so you can see where my where my head's at. So for me, the studio version of this song, it's a fairly middling sort of 5 out of 10. I don't dislike it particularly, but I don't listen to it at all unless I'm spinning Southern Accents in its entirety. I find it sonically jarring and quite haphazardly arranged, if I'm honest. And it never settles into one vibe or another, and the, the transitions don't seem to really, don't seem to gel very well. The live version, however, is a strong seven pushing hard towards an eight, because, you know, 
even just the work that Mike puts in on guitar and Ben Mont's ripping piano, along with the addition of that organ and more layering to the vocals, just elevates it so, so, so much. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do that until I don't need to do it anymore. Please let me not have to do this anymore soon, please. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check out all my brothers and sisters over on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. They're fantastic people, genuinely. They're really good people um, doing great work, and they've been they're so supportive of all the podcasts in the network. Um, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. And if you want to leave a review, leave a review. But you know what? If you don't want to leave a review, maybe just tell someone else about the podcast. Um, you know, if, it's, if you've got a, a music lover in your life, or definitely if you've got a Tom Petty fan in your life, you haven't told about it yet, spread the word because I, I love engaging with different people. And I know that lots of people do hear secondhand by word of mouth. So tell people about the podcast. Um, just a reminder that the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estates in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first to find what you're looking for. Or go to the streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Prime, um, and get your legal streams, people. Get legal streams. Um, for merchandise, please, please, please go to TomPetty.com. Uh, that's where all the official stuff is there. Uh, and there's some fantastic merch in there at the moment, as well as the um, the box sets of the Fillmore 1997 um, record, which you have to, have to, have to, have to have. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook, if you're not already a member. Um, they're excellent groups, uh, brilliant fan communities, and they are well worth spending a little bit of time in. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about the third and most famous track from Southern Accents. Don't come around here no more. Bye-bye. 